Uhuru, you're listening to the Reparations in Action Roundtable podcast and FM radio show broadcast live every Tuesday at 12 p.m. on Black Power 96.3 WBPULP St. Petersburg, Florida, and now available as a podcast as well. You can follow Reparations in Action on Podbean at uhurusolidarity.podbean.com. My name is Jamie Simpson. Penny Hess. And I'm Jesse Neville. We want to welcome you to this week's Reparations in Action roundtable discussion of some of the most pressing issues of these times of a colonial system in profound crisis. So as I said, my name is Jamie Simpson, and along with my co-host here, we are addressing other white people who listen to Black Power 96.3, a black community radio station. All of us are white people who believe in solidarity with African liberation and reparations, white people's reparations to African people. We believe reparations is a question that demands action on the part of European or white people. Today we'll be summing up the headlines from the perspective of the African or black working class and unity with reparations and self-determination for African people worldwide. And all of our understandings flow from having worked under the leadership of the African Revolution, the Uhuru Movement. As always, we'd like to salute Black Power 96.3 for allowing us to have this hour every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern time, and for the African People's Education and Defense Fund, the nonprofit that guides Black Power 96, whose mission statement is to address the grave disparities faced by the African community in human rights, economic development, health and healthcare, and education. And we are beginning this show in the midst of a resurgent colonial virus, as Chairman Amalia Shatella, founder and leader of the Uhuru Movement, has termed it, or the coronavirus, which at this moment stands with a death toll in the United States of at least 129,500 people killed by the coronavirus. This is a period we're seeing an, a new strain of this virus that is much more communicable than in previous instances. We're seeing a younger demographic of people in North America who are testing positive for the coronavirus or COVID-19. We're seeing reopenings across the country. Um, in some places, they have had to slow these reopenings or stop them to some degree in the face of this uh, immense spike in the coronavirus. We're seeing governors expose their opportunism, trying to keep as much of their states open in the face of this spike that is still disproportionately affecting African people and indigenous people. We've also seen this week reports of residual effects in individuals who have supposedly recovered from coronavirus. We, we've seen that the U.S. failure to respond in any adequate way to this colonial virus has pushed the spread of the virus to peak record levels throughout the country. We've seen the Trump Coronavirus Task Force back in the public stage saying finally, for the first time publicly, that people should wear masks. So that's where the nation stands at a quick look with respect to the coronavirus. Now let's take a more focused look at news from the Uhuru Solidarity Movement and its campaign of make Wall Street pay reparations, going for the jugular vein, as it were, of the ruling class. Jesse Neville, 
Could you talk to us about some of the actions from this campaign and what, what, what this campaign has gotten in terms of notice from the mainstream media? What were the actions and what was noted in these media sources? Uhuru, Jamie, and Penny, it's great to be on the program today. And I want to just uh, really salute this radio station, Black Power 96. And in particular, I want to salute my leadership, the African People's Socialist Party, Chairman Omali Shatala, and uh, in particular, the chairman's uh, call for the Uhuru Solidarity Movement under his leadership and under the leadership of the party to carry out a sustained political campaign to demand reparations from the banks and the money sector, the corporations, the 1%, if you will, within this country to African people for their historic role in the enslavement of African people and their ongoing role as financers and profiteers of all forms of colonialism and oppression of African and other oppressed peoples in the US and around the world. And this campaign has been in motion just for a few months. It actually was launched at the Uhura Solidarity Movement National Convention, the Reparations Uprising in April. And in just a short amount of time under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party, this campaign has really sent fear down the spines of the bankers and the ruling class in this country as evidenced by discussions they're having amongst themselves within their bourgeois media outlets. Um, on June 12th, the Uhuru Solidarity Movement held a press conference in front of Bank of America in St. Petersburg just a few weeks after we held these really dynamic uh, car actions in Boston and New York in front of J.P. Morgan Chase demanding reparations. The press conference in front of St. Petersburg was especially significant, um, Jamie, um, because Chairman Omali Shatella was our speaker. It was a great honor. Uh, he was out there and he um, made a very powerful statement calling for the banks to pay reparations and exposing the hypocrisy of all of these banks that are, you know, have trillions of dollars based on the attack and enslavement of African people that are now claiming to be in support of black lives and the black community and what have you saying, you don't wow. get to set the terms for what that looks like. So there was an article in the Tampa Bay Times covering this called Make Bank of America Pay Reparations that has a picture of the chairman and others, including you actually, Jamie, you're there, and others who are standing out in front of Bank of America. Uh, it was a pretty decent article, especially by the Tampa Bay Times standards that gave a, a, a fairly accurate account of what happened on that day. And then that article had uh, reverberations throughout the bourgeois media, including in some of the upper elite financial journals in this country, Business Insider, uh, which, you know, on, on their uh, homepage, they have information about the price of Bank of America stock, right? So in that publication, they ran an article a few days ago uh, that was um, about how companies and corporations and banks are facing demands that they pay reparations for their role in perpetuating the quote, racial uh, wealth gap. And this article quoted from the Tampa Bay Times saying, Florida-based Uhuru Solidarity Movement has demanded Bank of America pay reparations for its historic role in perpetuating inequality. In 2013, for instance, Bank of America paid $2.2 million in back pay to black job applicants 
after the Department of Labor found evidence of racist hiring practices, then it has this quote from the chairman, reparations means repair the damage, Omalia Shatella, chairman of the African People's Socialist Party, told the Tampa Bay Times, reparations has to mean negating the power and influence of banks like this. And then on, also on June 26, a website called Axios ran an article called Corporations Grapple with Slavery Reparations, um, showing just the ripple effect of this campaign. That article also cites the Tampa Bay Times piece on the chairman's statement and the press conference held by the Uhuru Solidarity Movement in front of Bank of America. This comes just a few weeks after Forbes magazine uh, ran an article about companies that have taken a public stand in support of the black community in this era of, of uh, resistance by the African community. And they mentioned that Cliff Bar made a contribution to the uh, nonprofit, the African People's Education and Defense Fund. So the fact that the Uhuru movement and the Uhuru movement's work to win reparations from the money sector uh, in many different forms is receiving coverage in these elite financial journals shows the tremendous impact of the African People's Socialist Party and of this campaign of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement that is raising the question of reparations right up into the corporate boardrooms where the lives of African people, uh, the fate of African people is normally uh, determined by these bankers and, and the corporate elite. This, this, rep, this demand is there, they cannot escape it, they cannot avoid it, and this campaign is gonna continue to escalate. Wow, thank you so much for that report, Justine. I just have to say, since you outed me as having been there that day, it was such an honor to have been part of that action outside of Bank of America. And I, I will never forget the, uh, the security guard for Bank of America coming down and making sure that he read every single one of the banners and reported that to his superiors right into those boardrooms that are making these decisions that, that you're talking about. Penny Hess, can, can you talk to us about this, this question of reparations that's, that's out there, that's going viral right now? Woo, yes. And I just want to salute you, Jamie, and Jesse. And of course, I want to salute Chairman O'Malley Shatella, our leadership from the African People's Socialist Party that leads the African People's Solidarity Committee, white organization under the leadership of the party. I just wanted to read a few sentences from this from the tampa bay times which i thought was really really powerful and to say that as usual the local media in st pete has and used to be the st petersburg times now it's the tampa bay times due to the crisis of imperialism and the media and um but it has spent a lot of time attacking the Uru movement and of course tirelessly attacking the african working class community and and supporting the gentrification efforts of the local government. But I just wanted to read a few sentences from the article about it, which I thought, as Jesse said, was pretty good. It said, local store employees came out to watch and errand goers stopped on their journeys to listen Friday morning to a group of protesters demanding that Bank of America pay financial reparations to the black community. The voices of the leaders of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, a group dedicated to organizing white support for Black-led community social justice, projected up and down Third Street from the Bank of America branch where they stood. The speakers, including Omali Shatella, the chairman of the African People's Socialist Party, addressed the need for major corporations to recognize their role in the perpetuation of racial economic inequality. 
the news conference was in direct response to Bank of America's announcement last week that the corporation would be committing $1 billion over four years, quote, to help local communities address economic and racial inequality accelerated by a global pandemic, according to a news release. Protesters say that's not enough. A measly $1 billion for so-called racial equality does not let Bank of America off the hook, said Jesse Neville, the national chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, who ran for mayor of St. Petersburg in 2017. In response, the group is demanding Bank of America provide funds to the Black Power Blueprint, a Black-led organization that aims to create wealth in African-American communities. Bank of America is only one of many banks and corporations in need of paying reparations, protesters said. Quote, many people do not understand the role of the banks play in determining what's going to happen in our communities, said Chairman Isatella. For him and others, other leaders of the Uhuru movement, the decisions by banks to back community projects that contributed to gentrification are um, sucking resources from the neighborhoods. Specifically, Ishitella named the development of baseball complexes, including Tropicana Field, which now stands where Black-owned businesses once stood. The demands for reparations for Black community are rooted in a call to address America's century-long history of slavery and modern injustices, particularly the death of George Floyd, who died in police custody as an officer knelt on his neck. I just wanted to read that as well, because I think that is powerful. And that is the article that um, influenced other news sources and quoted Chairman Amalia Ishitella as well. And that is so important. You know, it shows something that Chairman Amalia Ishitella has talked about, which is the vulnerability of the ruling class of the banks of Wall Street, of the 1%, that they know that they have the, what, 99% of the resources of the planet in their hands. And that resources, those resources were the result of the stolen labor and genius and, and uh, of African people for hundreds of years, the theft of African resources that goes on today and the, um, the genocide of the indigenous people, the theft of their land, and the colonial domination of the majority of the people on the planet Earth. And I think that um, the whole question of reparations is, is out there because of the work of the African People's Socialist Party and Chairman Omali Shatello, that he has played the leading role in defining the oppression of African people as colonialism inside the borders of the United States and around the world, and has led the African People's Socialist Party in making reparations a household word, something that he put out nearly 40 years ago after in 1981 committing to make reparations um, a household word and to build the International Tribunal on Reparations to African People. So, you know, I just, I just salute Chairman O'Malley to tell her that this work to bring out this question that we're seeing echoed in the mainstream media throughout this country and even throughout the world on the question of reparations is the work, the result of the constant work of Chairman Omali Shatella and the African People's Socialist Party 
and the African People's Solidarity Committee, which the party created to work in white communities as black power and white face, um, that, that this work has gone on for over 40 years to uh, lead up to this period today that a lot of white people can begin to see due to the brutal murder of George Floyd and the powerful and amazing resistance of the African working class. So I just want to give that input, but this question of reparations is the key question out there today. It, it really demonstrably is. If you, even if you look at the New York Times, it recently ran an article titled, Banks Should Face History and Pay Reparations, which reads, but business leaders who are serious about fighting racism will hold themselves accountable for the bitter inequities that have helped to create and sustain and from which they have profited. Every industry must now use its power to repair the damage and heal the wounds. The financial industry is a good place to start. Banks have been underwriters of American racism. No industry has played a bigger or more enduring role in black oppression, exploitation, and exclusion. Banks financed the slave trade and in some cases, quote, repossessed humans in bondage. White-owned banks refused to serve black people who left the South, escaping brutality and seeking opportunity during the great migration of the early and mid-20th century. Bank policies and practices contributed to segregating every major city and denying black families the two most important toeholds to the middle class, ownership of homes and businesses. So those have always been under assault. That, what, what that article is talking about, in a sense, towards the end, is any sense of self-determination, of uh, economic self-reliance. This uh, society, America, white power, has never allowed African people a modicum of that, of, of self-determination, of owning the means of production. And this is, this is the point of a revolutionary stance in reparations that goes to, to repairing the damage, to building up economic independence for the black community. Agreed. Yeah, it's, I, I just unite with what, what's been summed up by Penny and Jamie, um, by both of you up to this point. And there was another article, and it's one amongst many, uh, in the bourgeois media, the ruling class media, that shows the impact of this question of reparations. This one was actually in the Washington Post, and it was called Reparations Need to Be Part of the Conversation about racial justice. Um, it reads in part, over the past month, protests across the country and even the world have erupted in response to the death of George Floyd by white Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin. While the protests have focused on police violence, the issues of racism, and we're gonna talk about that issue of racism and what that means. Um, and we're gonna hear from the chairman on that uh, a little bit later in this program today, um, that these issues the issue of what we understand as the colonial oppression of African people are deeply rooted and multifaceted. In fact, addressing police brutality is not enough. Racial equality uh, demands addressing economic inequality begot by centuries of white supremacy, as they characterize it in this article. Since the days of slavery, white wealth has been built on the backs of black people. Historian Stephen Dale estimates the value of all enslaved Africans across the American South in 1860 as at least $3 billion, three times the amount of all capital in the North and South combined, 12 times the value of the cotton crop 
seven times the value of all currency in circulation. Simply put, African people were the genesis of American wealth and prosperity during the antebellum period. And I mean, it's just incredible to see the impact of Chairman O'Malley Chatella's analysis and worldview, even though 99.9% .9 of the time, the bourgeois media and bourgeois academics give no attribution to the chairman for raising these questions, even using terms like the genesis. Like that reminds me of so many things the chairman has written about the genesis of parasitic capitalism being in the enslavement of African people. So um, the article here goes on to say, enslaved people themselves were counted as property, their labor created products sold domestically and internationally in ways that boosted value of the country's currency. Washington, D.C. slave owners were paid reparations during the Civil War. Quick note about that kind of sounds like France getting reparations uh, from Haiti for the loss of their property after the African Revolution of Haiti, uh, their property having been enslaved Africans. Um, the article goes on, President Lincoln worried that slave owners in border states would defect to the Confederacy to ensure these slaveholders remain loyal to the Union, even as their states voluntarily emancipated slaves, quote unquote. Lincoln compensated them for their losses. In Washington, federal legislation awarded them up to $300 for every emancipated enslaved person. While Union General William T. Sherman's Special Field Order Number 15 initially made similar promises of 40 acres of land uh, to former enslaved Africans, as well as promises of autonomous, self-sufficient African communities stretching along the coasts of South Carolina, Florida, and Georgia, Andrew Johnson overturned it, returning the land to the very people who had declared war on the United States after the Civil War freed Africans also almost immediately sought recompense for the horrors they endured. Callie House was one of those pioneers in 1891 while working as a seamstress and washerwoman. She first learned about the idea of reparations through a pamphlet called the Freedmen's Pension Bill. Uh, despite her concerns with the author's motives, he was a white Democrat who wanted to manipulate the post-war situation and boost the economy to benefit white Southerners. She saw the opportunity to reframe the reparations debate in a way that would give former enslaved Africans the help they needed. And she joined Isaiah Dickerson, an African teacher and minister. They launched the National Ex-Slave Mutual Relief Bounty and Pension Association and began petitioning Congress for, uh, for reparations. And the reparations struggle has a long history um, in this country. And um, yeah, I think it's just very powerful to see that this, this thing that, you know, the bourgeoisie and the sort of mainstream of white society had for years relegated to the fringes and considered this, this crazy extremist idea um, has been forced into the center of the popular discussion by the resistance of African people. Obviously, there's an effort by the liberal sector of white power, you know, the presidential candidates, the Democrats and people to, to get their hands on this question and redefine it. And as the chairman says, to strip it of its revolutionary anti-colonial essence. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, as the chairman says, the genie is, is out of the bottle and it's not gonna be able to put back. And this, this question is out there. And, you know, the leadership of the African working class is rising up to define it and to make it a reality. So this is, it's very powerful to see.
Aguero. Aguero, yeah, I just really appreciate uh, that. And I just want to say that, you know, everything that was quoted from the New York Times and also from, from the Washington Post, all of this history, this, um, you know, the, this data, this, these statistics, you know, just this analysis of how the U.S. economy as the leader of the world capitalist economy is parasitic. It was born at the expense of African people, literally, in every possible way. But all of this and so much more, Chairman O'Malley Shatella has put out year after year, day after day, for his entire life. He has been the one out there in any, any situation that he can find, any opportunity to speak about the colonial domination of African people, the need, the demand for reparations as a, as a revolutionary demand, and the reality that this, this capitalism and the U.S. itself as the leader of world imperialism is parasitic. It can't exist for one day without sucking the blood of African people and the indigenous and oppressed peoples of the, inside the borders of the United States and around the world. And I think that the point, you know, these words that they're trying to take this reality which defines colonialism and call it racism or the struggle for racial equality, quote unquote, or how to repair the damage that can never happen, as the chairman makes it really clear, inside of the system that needs to exploit and um, parasitically um, oppress African people for its ability to, to survive. It, it, can't, it simply can't happen. It was built this way. It is formed this way. <laughs> it will continue this way. And that's why it has to bring us as white people, and of course, through the leadership of the African working class to a revolutionary conclusion. You know, there's, there's no other way. I mean, the US can, what can they do? You know, they can make a payout like they did, you know, the $1,200 or something to some people inside this country. Um, they can create money whenever they want to for their own wars and their own ways and means of carrying out the colonial violence against African people. They can, they can do what they want to do. Um, they can create resources to turn over to African people, but it would never be enough. It would never change the fact that white people, even as not even counting the ruling class, that all of us have centuries of social wealth passed down from generation to generation and which in most cases compounds the, the worth of that um, you know that it, it enables white people to have um, a sizable down payment on on a house or property or go to college and not have to be in debt um, for student loans etc so I think that um, I think that this is this is really the question and the reality that that we have to look at in this question of reparations and the, the essence that the chairman brings in. And I would just say, finally, that there have been 
more and more white people who are saying not only does the U.S. government owe reparations, but white people owe reparations as well. And this is the result of the work of the African People's Solidarity Committee and the Group Solidarity Movement, um, that we live at the highest standard of living in the world. We are, as the chairman says, the colonizer nation. And we ourselves owe reparations. And when we go to the banks and the ruling class, we are taking this struggle to our own ruling class who must pay reparations, but understanding this in a revolutionary context, that they cannot really do that because African people are owed everything. African people created all the wealth of the system and reparations means the entire system is owed to them. That is our responsibility as white people to bring that to other white people and to, and to our ruling class and to take that stand and recognize that that is our anti-imperialist stance. So I just wanted to say that it's such a deep and profound question, one that we will continue to discuss throughout the show and also throughout you know, upcoming shows on reparations and action. Thank you, Penny Hess. Um, really, really salute your stance over these uh, 40 years, uh, really showing white people what it means to be in material solidarity with African liberation. Welcome back to Reparations in Action. In this segment of the episode, we want to continue to deepen the question of all these symbols of colonial uh, capitalism, of parasitic capitalism, monuments, uh, colonial statues coming down. We wanted to, to really deepen our understanding of this on Reparations in Action from an African international's perspective and uh, sum up these protests and the, the very question of colonialism in every aspect of these symbols of colonial oppression that are coming under attack. So let's talk about this ongoing crisis for imperialism in the wake of the brutal police murder or lynching of George Floyd. We've seen statues of Theodore Roosevelt um, placed riding high on a horse above an African and indigenous man in a clear white nationalist statement. We've seen statues of Christopher Columbus, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, all designated for removal or removed by the people already. We've also seen uh, food products and everything from uh, Disney World theme park attractions, such as Splash Mountain's song that uh, harkens to the Song of the South. That is getting a makeover. Imperialism is trying to clean up all of these colonial symbols in a scramble to cover up their origins in colonial violence, colonial slavery, and plunder. So we really wanted to sum up this phenomenon from an anti-colonial perspective. Penny Hess, can you break this down for us? Uhuru, Jamie. Yes, I think that Chairman Alali Shatella, again, has given us brilliant leadership on this, and he is the one that's out there fiercely defining the question as colonialism and not racism. And he's called uh, racism, a struggle against racism, a self-defeating waste of time, that African people are struggling for power, power over their lives, to control their own economy, to control their own lives, their destinies, and power to protect 
African people from anybody with racist ideas in their heads. But just starting on undoing the bad ideas in white people's heads is never going to work. And it's already proven that. I mean, how many years of unlearning racism workshops have, have we seen? Again, you know, even towards the police, the police take these trainings. Um, but how can a colonial, a colonial force whose essence is carrying out the violence to control an oppressed and colonized people, how can unlearning racism have anything to do with what their mandate is as a job? You know, so that's, that's not going to change. And I think that because Chairman O'Malley, Chatel, and the African People's Socialist Party have been so clear that it is colonialism, that it's an interesting thing that this demand for statues and the Confederate flag and, you know, uh, statues of Confederate generals and that kind of thing, um, that, that this whole struggle has gone beyond just the Confederacy, which is actually a struggle that's been out there for many years and many some places um, in some, some southern states of the U.S., the Confederate symbols and monuments have already been taken down for a while. But the thing, because the chairman has the colonial question out there, we see that this demand around removing statues is going much deeper to all of the, um, you know, to all of the representative monuments of colonialism itself, including U.S. presidents, even to George Washington, who owned enslaved African people, Barry Budaway, Thomas Jefferson also owned African people, Andrew Jackson, you know, these presidents. There, in fact, there's a struggle going on in front of the White House right now or um, around the White House to remove that statue of Andrew Jackson. So, you know, we see in Britain struggles to take down all statues of Cecil Rhodes, which actually Oxford University had to, to do recently, um, a struggle that was being led by African students in occupied Azani or South Africa over the last several years. Um, now they're forced to do that. Also Winston Churchill in Belgium, statues and monuments to King Leopold, the vicious perpetrator of genocide in the Congo, who owned the Congo as a private industry of its own and, and slaughtered and committed genocide against 10 to 15 million African people and cut off the hands of millions more there in the process of forcing Africans to uh, grow and harvest the rubber uh, crop in, in that country that made him and Belgium itself incredibly wealthy, that, you know, you see this going on around the world, the struggles of, the struggles against any representation of colonialism. And that is, I see that as, as a result of Chairman O'Malley Chatella's analysis that we're facing colonialism. But the chairman has also said that, you know, okay, but we can't wipe out the evidence. We can't be part of sanitizing what you know, this most vicious system that's ever existed on the planet Earth looks like and does, you know, that's, that's not the goal because that's not going to change it. What it has to be is a struggle against the colonial state. It can't be reformed. It's not structural racism, institutional race, racism. We're going to hear the chairman talking about this 
in just a minute. Um, and that the fact that, you know, it, for white people, it can go out of style, it can be trendy to take the stand, but then we can go back to our nice little um, homes and, and, and places because we are the colonizer nation and there are two Americas here and one is catching hell and the other is experiencing the benefits of the stolen labor, land and resources and even democratic rights that are afforded to white people. So this is the question. And if we're gonna look at what the chairman is saying about is it colonialism or is it racism? Racism requires nothing of us. Colonialism requires that we be organized, but that we have to be organized under the leadership of the African working class, the African People's Socialist Party. We can't define how this struggle moves forward, but we can be under the leadership, organizing in the white community for reparations and genuine solidarity with the right of African people to be free and liberated and to lead the struggle that unites all oppressed and colonized peoples to defeat imperialism to have a world in which all human beings can live. So we, we got to get organized. True. I agree. We have to get organized. And I, I think that it is very powerful as, um, as Penny just talked about, you know, what you were just saying that the colonial question is being raised in the world today in such a pronounced fashion. Um, and you know, that this is because of the struggle of the African working class and also just want to unite with, you know, really saluting chairman Amalia Shetela for being relentless in making this political and ideological struggle in the world all the time on his studies and every presentation that he gives for the, for us to really understand that the struggle is against colonialism and how that is different from racism or any of its variations and any of the ways that, that they have tried to adjust the definition of racism in order to liquidate an understanding of colonialism. And uh, the other thing I just really unite with um, that you were just saying is this whole thing about, you know, going beyond a uh, protest when it is trendy. And, you know, it's, this isn't the first time, there was an article in the New York Times uh, that had it said black activists wonder is protesting just trendy for white people. And it says, uh, though black protesters have been heartened by the many white people joining them in the streets, some wonder if this newfound commitment will last. Uh, Cherish Patton recalled springing into action when a friend sent her a message that a New York city police officer had grabbed a petite protester by her hood and flung her to the pavement. Miss Patton, posted a plea on social media for help identifying the officer. She also called for her friend for details on the protester who had been whisked to the emergency room. Oh, it's Michelle, her friend told her. Wait, white Michelle, who I argued with for three years? White Michelle asked an astonished and confused Miss Patton, who is black. Uh, the hurt protester was a former classmate, Michelle Moran, whose conservative commentary on politics and social issues had made Miss Patton cringe in high school in Manhattan. Uh, and then it goes on to say, George Floyd's death pushed anguished black people into the street as had happened countless times after police killings of black people. But this time the black protesters have been joined in mass by white people in rallies across New York city and around the country. And it goes on to raise the question of, um, you know, whether this is something that's just a moment, a fad, uh, something that white people are doing to get their pictures taken for social media, or 
if it does represent a change in the consciousness and in in the future for the stand that white people are going to take and something that you know we wanted to mention is that there have been other periods over the last few decades where a particular cause will become trendy for white people to be involved in protesting um, whether it's supporting the people in El Salvador, whether it's supporting the people in Nicaragua, whether it's even more recently, you know, marching against, you know, um, gun violence or something like that. I mean, it was trendy a few years ago for white, young white people to march for our lives, quote unquote, and, and call for gun control. Um, there have been different times when it is sort of trendy for white people to get out in the streets and protest. Um, but the question is, once the protesting is over, to become organized under the leadership of the African working class and to be, make it our lives to be part of the struggle to end the colonial violence uh, that happens every single day against African people. Um, during the period of the Nicaraguan revolution, when it was trendy for a lot of white people to support that struggle, the Sandinistas who had had a long-term relationship with the African People's Socialist Party uh, they would come to events of the party and the African People's Solidarity Committee and white people would come out and the leaders of the Sandinista struggle would say to the white people, if you really want to be in support of the struggle of the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, then you need to get organized under the leadership of the African Revolution. You need to unite with the anti-colonial struggle of African people right here inside the belly of the beast. You need to join the African People's Solidarity Committee. And I think that's the same message that you know, as as organizers of USM and, and APSC, that we have to be out there uh, winning white people too. Like, it is good that white people are out there taking a stand. And the point is that it can't be a trend. It can't be a fad. It has to continue when the cameras are gone, when the media is gone, when, when the protests are, are over, um, the struggle continues and white people have a role and a responsibility in that struggle under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party. Really appreciate that, Jesse. And, you know, I think that just speaks to why the formation of the African People's Solidarity Committee was such a strategically brilliant move on the part of the African People's Socialist Party. The party has been struggling with this question of what about the white people? What is our role? And all of these stories of uh, what sounds like an unprecedented number of white people partaking in these protests of uh, police murder, it, it brings up the question of the role of white people. That role has, that question has come up in numerous articles. You referenced one, Jesse, about the um, George Floyd protests and the, the presence of so many white people. Is this a trend? For the white people involved, is this, is this just posturing or will it actually lead to the material solidarity that you're talking about? On uh, June 24th, there was a New York Times article called White People Say They Are Waking Up to Racism. What will it add up to? So let's, let's just read a few uh, bits of this New York Times article on white people discovering the oppression of African people. So the New York Times goes on to say the sustained outcry over Mr. Floyd's death has compelled many white Americans to acknowledge the anti-black racism that is prevalent in the United States and to perhaps even examine their own culpability for it. It is as though the ability of white people to collectively ignore the everyday experience of black people has been short-circuited 
at least for now. So we want to sum that up, but let's turn now to a, a very appropriate clip from chairman of the African People's Socialist Party and African Socialist International, founder of and leader of the Uhuru Movement, Chairman Omali Eshetela. That's one way they have to recognize the existence of colonialism. They just want to give it a name uh, that satisfy uh, their ideological interpretation of reality, which is racism. Because racism, you're not fighting, again, you have no material interest in racism. You just see that these, uh, and they've been forced to do that. They've been forced to say that it's institutionalized racism once you begin to struggle against uh, uh, racism and, and raise up the colonial contradiction to liquidate the colonial question or to obscure it or to hide it, uh, they want to give it a, a, a racial uh, clothing. So they say this institutional racism, and they find institutional racism uh, based on the very same uh, features of colonialism for the most part. And so uh, it is, uh, it's a method of obscurantism uh, that our colonial oppressors are using uh, in this instance. And it's also uh, a place they've been, re they've retreated to that position. They'd rather not even recognize the institutions that have them, but the, the, the demand for uh, the defeat of colonialism is required for them to, to make those kinds of statements. You know, France Fanon, uh, I was looking at something recently saying that one of the contributing things that Fanon did, uh, and you know, there, there's a lot to, when we can unite with uh, that came from Fanon, is that he recognized that when you look at colonialism, um, that um, what's extremely important is that, that all of the injuries, I mean, we look at our communities, we were talking about this perhaps before uh, this study began, or perhaps during the first study, how the damage that's been done to our people, the, the, the people of mentally and, and spiritually just crushed by colonialism. And one thing that Fanon recognized that I agree with, uh, that the colonized uh, can only be cured uh, through killing the colonizer. That violence is an extraordinarily important, plays an extraordinarily important role uh, in the liberation of the colonized. And, and uh, uh, that it is one of the cleansing uh, you know, things. I mean, you look at the inhumanity. I, I said sometime during this discussion that there are no words that one can use that can adequately describe what the colonists did to us, what the Spaniards did to the indigenous people here, what they, all of them have done to us. There are pictures that we can see in Algeria of white men standing up in their, uh, their iconic uh, colonial clothing uh, next to stacks of heads, human heads. People have been decapitated. decapitated. And they're the photos made famous uh, in this country of white families, children, uh, women, men, you know, the delicate white woman, you know, with her delicate white children who can't look at video games because they're too violent, standing and pointing at Africans who have been massacred, hanging in trees or being torched to, uh, you know, I mean, these, these are the things that, has, that have happened to us. There is not going to be any easy way out of this for any of us. We're going to have to fight like hell to get out of here. And the way that part of the curative uh, thing, uh, and, and I say this because I see a lot of Africans who talk about how, you know, we got to heal ourselves. Yeah, heal yourself with, a, with an AK. I mean, I think that the, the healing process is a lot more 
involved and interesting than, than what they would have. There's an assumption that you can heal in the system. You can heal in the system. They, you know, there are not enough universities producing enough psychiatrists um, uh, to uh, provide some kind of healing balm uh, for what uh, colonialism has done and what colonialism does do to us today. That's going to be um, uh, something self-healing is absolutely necessary in this instance. Uhuru. May I just say one other thing, um, just in terms of this uh, bourgeois uh, uh, academic uh, obscurantism, you know, like in diversion. Um, and like one such thing is this, in, you know, sometimes the thing is not to say that this doesn't exist, but to take it from the center, to take it to destroy its significance as a driving force, a defining factor, uh, like intersectionality, whatever the hell that is, you know, like intersectionality. Here you have the intersection, and that's what we have to deal with, the intersection of women's oppression, homosexual oppression, black oppression, Mexicans, all of us have this, there's this intersectionality that we have to deal with, right? And that is to obscure and, uh, and liquidate the colonial question as the driving fundamental factor. And then you have these pop, pop ideologists, pop uh, uh, ideologues who would throw in every guy, everything. You know, it's colonialism, it's capitalism, uh, it's uh, uh, patriarchy, you know, et cetera. Uh, and, and this is really powerful because you say patriarchy, right? This is the petty bourgeoisie there introducing the oppression of women. They're really in front of the question now. They're really on the top list of, of the hierarchy of progress when they say patriarchy. And it's nonsense. I mean, you got talking about patriarchy being the problem uh, where, you know, I forgot how many means Africans, they say have disappeared and African men have disappeared inside this country where uh, uh, something like there are only uh, 80 some odd uh, African men uh, for every African, uh, 100 African women in this country, where they're only, in, if in Ferguson, there are only 64 African men for every 100 African women. And it's colonialism that created that situation and patriarchy is a factor in the whole European question uh, uh, in Europe. That's a history of their relationship, et cetera. But, the colonial contradiction is the fundamental contradiction. And in so saying, it shouldn't be necessary. I know it's not necessary for whom I'm talking to right now. It does not liquidate or obscure uh, the conditions that African women have to contend with. But can we imagine? Can, is it possible to imagine free African women if African people are not free? It's, it's absolutely uh, absurdity. It's the colonized condition of African people uh, that we have to confront with, and African women have to be brought into the front lines of that struggle against colonialism, and that's how African women would define for themselves what freedom looks like. Rue, that was Chairman Omalia Shatela of the African People's Socialist Party, African Socialist International, and Uhuru Movement. Penny Hess. Did you have any thoughts on that incredible clip? Jamie, I, I just really want to say that was so powerful. As always, Chairman Amalia Shatella is right on point. And, you know, I think just to start with what the chairman was saying of what the colonizers, that's us, and the system have done to African people 
over and over again for hundreds of years in the torture, the terror, the power of life and death over any African person, the what's called the lynchings, the mutilations, the rape, the theft of anything that an African person might get in terms of resources, having worked and built the, you know, the, the burning down of Tulsa and Rosewood and so many other places, just the terror that I've even read that the DNA of that terror is passed down from generation to generation. Um, this is something that science has shown. And that is not going to be resolved with a payment of reparations. It's not going to be solved as a payoff. There's no way that that's going to happen. And also what the chairman is talking about in terms of this ridiculous, um, you know, just obscuring of the, of the colonial contradiction by calling, by saying intersectionality, by patriarchy. How do you fight the patriarchy? How do you fight it? Where is its center? And intersectionality is a way of saying that our contradictions with our ruling class that we experience sitting on the backs of African people is equated with the conditions of colonialism that the chairman just described and talked about. That is ridiculous. And we know that that is not true because as white people, as white women, as white LGBT workers, every contradiction we have had with our ruling class has been given us, has been given us as long as we are good white Americans or Europeans who continue to enforce the colonial violence and the reality of the colonial state against African people and oppressed and colonized peoples around the world. So that is, it does not stand. The question is colonialism, that must be fought. There is a colonial state, which is the largest military on the planet Earth, but that the Africans in Haiti defeated the army of, of uh, Napoleon, the Vietnamese defeated the US Army. The Preston colonized are in the process of doing that right now. They're bringing down the system. It must go, it must be wiped off the planet Earth in order for African people to be free, for African women to be free in the context of all of African people. We're gonna see the genius of the planet just unleashed in a powerful way that is going to save this planet and take it to a higher level. So I just really want to, you know, say that this has been an incredible show and that I want to call on white people that if you're open, if you're seeing this reality, the question between colonialism and racism is carried out in organization under the leadership of the African working class. Not an organization of our own, but I wanted to call on Comrade Jesse to say how people could be organized. Yes, can you tell us how white people can be under the leadership of the African Revolution? White people can become under the leadership of the African Revolution by joining the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, and UhuruSolidarity.org is where more information on that is available. And also, we have a work day this Saturday uh, that you can join on July 4th. Uh, 2020. You can participate in a workday 
to build the Make Wall Street Pay Reparations campaign and other facets of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. If you've got graphic design, social media, video editing, phone banking, any other skills, or you want to learn those skills, um, you can contact info at uhurusolidarity.org to get involved in building the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. And this Friday night, July 3rd, tune in for the Black Power 96 online uh, concert on Black Power 96 Facebook page or Burning Spears YouTube channel. This is featuring artists from around the country sharing their talents to celebrate the unification and self-determination of the African community. And that event is going to be kicking off the Black Power 96 membership drive that's going to be going from July 3rd through the 18th. We're honored to be a part of that. So donate, volunteer, become a supporting member, renew your support and mark your calendar to get ready to tune in July 3rd through the 18th for special programming and special thank yous when you donate to this incredible Black community controlled radio station. And you don't have to wait until July to show your support. Donate today and put July member drive in the comments at blackpower96.org. And we, as Reparations in Action, are going to have some special programming for that membership drive next week. That is blackpower96.org. You are listening to Black Power 96.3 WBPULP in St. Petersburg. We wanted to also announce a web show on Tuesday, June 30th at 7 p.m., Colonial Prisons Must Go webinar with T'Challa Masimba, Black Power Blueprint Economic Development Director, Bakari Olatunji, African People's Socialist Party Western Regional Representative, and Will Washington, Black Power Blueprint Vendor Coordinator, which you can view on the Black Power Blueprint YouTube and Facebook, or you can uh, register for that at tiny, the, register for the Zoom event by going to tinyurl.com slash colonial prisons must go. That's tinyurl.com slash colonial prisons must go. So we wanted to, I wanted to thank Jesse Neville and Penny Hess. I want to thank everyone who's tuned into this episode of Reparations in Action here on Black Power 96 WBPU LP in St. Petersburg, Florida. And invite everyone to return next week to Reparations in Action.